Good morning, everyone. I wanted to, uh, before we get started, just uh, emphasize some the, what Mark spoke about with our missions banquet. I really prefer the term homecoming. It's a better description of what this weekend is all about. And so if you're a, a member or a longtime attender of Melanie Park, I want you to understand you're the host of homecoming. Uh, you're the ones who are showing the hospitality as these longtime members of Melanie Park who've served in the uttermost places of the world are are coming home, and they'll tell you, because they say it every time, this is still their church home. No matter where they are, no matter where they reside, this is the church that sent them out, and this is what they consider to be their home, their church home. And so let me just encourage you to be a part of that. If you're new to Melanie Park, please come, because when you come to the missions weekend, you get a chance to see what really is the heartbeat of who we are as a church body. Because hear me clearly, if we ever lose sight of raising up disciples in order to send out disciples to the uttermost parts of the world, we have lost our way and we have forgotten the purpose for which the church was created by our God. So let's make sure that this doesn't become just something that we do. This is really important. This is who we are. This is who Christ has called us to be. So please, I urge you to make plans to be there that weekend. And I can assure you, you will not uh, regret it. So please do that. All right, how many of y'all have ever heard the phrase, I saw the writing on the wall? right, you've probably even used it yourself. You know that... That's used to explain something that's inevitable. It's just, it's going to happen, right? And you probably know that's where we get the phrase from our passage this morning. They literally see the writing of the wall. That's where that phrase came from. Now, you probably knew that, but let me ask you this. Have you ever heard the phrase, he got there by the skin of his teeth? Right? That's kind of a strange phrase, right? But we've all heard it before. Did you know that one came from the Bible as well? Job chapter 19, verse 20 says, My bone clings to my skin and my flesh, and I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. That's where that phrase comes from. Or what about when you're not surprised when someone kind of acts pretty consistent with their character? They're doing what you would expect them to do, and you say, well, leopard can't change its spots. Did you know that one came from the Bible as well? Jeremiah 13, 23 says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? And I could go on and on and on, but I think most people don't have a clue that these things actually originated in the Bible. So in that sense, maybe the Bible has more of an impact than people realize, which makes sense. It's been around for thousands of years, and yet still many people have no idea what it says. But as Christians, it's really important for us to know exactly what it says. And not only to know what it says, but to believe that what it says is absolutely true. I love the words of Joshua as he nears the end of his life and he's speaking to his people much like I'm speaking to you this morning. And in preparation for this day, look at what he says in Joshua chapter 23 verse 14. It says, now behold, today I am going the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words that the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. 
All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. Did you know what? I could stand up here this morning and tell you the exact same thing. Not one of them has failed. Love the words of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, when he says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is really important. It's important because believing that God's word is true is what motivates us to understand and to pursue what God's word says, right? If it's not true, if it's not something that we can rely on, then why would we read this book? But if it is true and it is something that we could rely on, how could we possibly avoid it? These are the words that lead to everlasting life. And so let's not take it lightly each week when we get to dive in to this together. And so with that in mind, let me pray for us as we enter into what still is living and active. And let's ask the Lord to make our hearts soft and receptive. Let's pray together. Lord, we do come to you this morning, and we need to be grateful. I think maybe we probably take it for granted. I'm sure most people in this room have more Bibles in their house than they know what to do with. And yet, we still um, probably don't look at them as much as we should. Forgive us for that. Father, I pray that we can enter into our time in your word knowing that it is absolutely true and not one single word has or ever will fail. Your word endures forever. Lord, what a privilege to look at that together this morning. So would you, by the power of your spirit and the truth of your word, speak to our hearts in life-changing ways. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, if you would, turn to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. I'd love for you to read along with me, if you would, beginning in verse 1. It says, Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them, as if they already hadn't had enough anyway, but anyway. Then they brought the gold vessels uh, that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze and iron and wood and stone. Let me give you a little historical context that takes place between the end of chapter 4 that we looked at last week and the beginning of chapter 5 that we will look at this morning. Because in that period of time between these two chapters, we know that about 25 years has elapsed. And in that time, there have been four different kings that have ruled since Nebuchadnezzar died. The latest being a king by the name of Nabonidus, okay, Nabonidus. Now, I want you to look again at your passage. That's not the name of the king you see in our passage, is it? And for years, skeptics looked at this and said, well, this just proves that the Bible isn't accurate because it doesn't match with what we know to be true in history. That's not the last king of Babylon. 
But what's interesting is as time has gone on and we were able to translate the cuneiform language that the Babylonians used, which for years was a mystery, all of a sudden we were now able to discover what it meant and what we found was that it actually supports this biblical account. Because what we learn from those ancient inscriptions is that Belshazzar was the son of Nabonidus, serving as a co-regent over Babylon while his father was away in battle. So in verse 2, when he identifies Nebuchadnezzar as his father, we need to know it's not his biological dad. Instead, it was his forefather in the royal lineage of Babylonian kings. And Belshazzar is claiming all the rights and privileges of what it means to be a king, including taking those gold and silver vessels that were removed from the temple in Jerusalem and using them in their pagan feast. So during this massive feast, for thou- with thousands of people, Belshazzar uses takes wine and serves them in these vessels. And we need to understand that these people are partying like there is no tomorrow. Make no mistake, this is drunken debauchery at its finest. That's what's happening in this scene. But I think it was also a distraction. And the reason was is because there was trouble literally knocking on the door of Babylon. Because the other thing we know from history, this is a fact, during this very same time, the city of Babylon was under siege. Cyrus the Great, who we know is the next conquering king, is making his way through the Babylonian empire, conquering everything as he goes. And guess what's next on his list? The capital city of Babylon. And so while they were having a party, the city was surrounded by the Persian army. So can you kind of picture what's going on here? This dichotomy of events that are taking place? Outside the city was this massive army. While inside the city, specifically inside the palace, was a massive party. Doesn't that seem interesting that those two things are happening at the same time? It might surprise you to to know that these people inside having the party weren't worried at all. And the reason is, is because they believed that their city was impenetrable. We know that they had at least 10 years of provisions stored up. So they can siege all they want to, but they're going to have to wait 10 years because they had enough of the provisions to last that long. Not to mention, they had an endless supply of water, because they had directed the Euphrates River to go right through the middle of the city. So they had all the food and water that they needed. Not only that, their city was protected by two massive walls. These walls were unassailable. The outside wall was so broad at the top, you could race chariots around the city. It was incredible. In fact, it was a fortress unlike the world had ever seen before. So even though they were surrounded by an army, the the people felt completely safe inside. 
And so much so that they choose to mock the God who said that they would be defeated. You see, if you think about it, Belshazzar had all kinds of vessels from all kinds of people, from all kinds of religions that were conquered during the Babylonian Empire. But he specifically asks for the vessels that were taken outside of the temple in Jerusalem. Because that's the God who told them that they wouldn't survive. He's using those vessels to praise pagan gods. And make no mistake, this is an act of complete rebellion, literally just spitting in the face of God. He knows the words that were spoken. He just doesn't believe they were true. And he's displaying utter contempt for God with unbridled depravity and arrogance. Look at how it continues in verse 5. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. The king saw the back of the hand and that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him. I bet they did. And his hip joints were slack, and he, his knees began knocking together. And then he called to bring the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read the inscriptions and explains the interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple, have a necklace of gold around his neck, and have authority as the third ruler of the kingdom. So instantly, the king's arrogance turns into fear. He didn't know what the words on the wall meant, but he knew it wasn't good. He could barely catch his breath before he falls into his chair, basically passing out. He calls for the wise men and offers them this reward. If anyone could tell him what the words on the wall meant, the wise men come in and and we know how this story goes. They, they have no idea what the words mean. I can only assume how the, the hysteria starts to spread as the, the word kind of makes his way outside of the palace because the next thing we know, the queen enters into the room. Now, earlier we learned that the king was in there with all of his wives and concubines and everything else. So who is this queen? Well, is in all likelihood that it is the queen mother who would be the wife of Nebuchadnezzar. And she knows exactly who to call. She knew the history of Daniel and what he was able to do. Because apparently Daniel's not serving in the royal court as he had done under King Nebuchadnezzar. So they summons Daniel to come immediately to the palace. And the king explains to him the problem and the reward that's in store should he be able to interpret this mysterious message that has been written on the wall. Look at how he continues in verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the Most High God granted sovereignty, 
grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father, because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. Whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated. And whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was disposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of the beasts. His, his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and, and they have brought the, the vessels out of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see, do not hear. Do not understand, but the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways, you have not glorified him. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. So again, use your imagination, and imagine what it had been like for Daniel to walk inside this room. You see, because I expect that Daniel and probably all the citizens of the city of Babylon knew what was going on outside of the city walls. And yet, when he walks into this room filled with all the leaders and nobles of that fair city, they didn't care anything about what was happening around the city walls. They had no concern for the people. Instead, what were they doing? And don't and, and selfish desires, it really would have been a disgusting and deplorable sight given the circumstances that were going on. And so Daniel speaks in order to set the record straight and he refuses the reward because he didn't want to take anything that would suggest that he was motivated by money or material gain. And he begins by establishing the sovereign rule of God the one who has the power to establish kings, and as we will see once again, the one who has the power to remove them. He turns to Belshazzar, a young and arrogant king, who again is technically second in command, but he's acting like he's the king of the world, that he's got this thing all figured out. And so Daniel compares him to Nebuchadnezzar, who was by far by far a greater king. It was during his, remember, 43-year reign that the Babylonian Empire was established. And yet, even he, in his arrogant pride, took all the credit for himself. Now, I don't expect any of this, again, was news to Belshazzar. Even though we look at 
the life of Nebuchadnezzar, and we talked about how he saw firsthand the power of God, but he refused to submit to the rule of God in his life. And so he removed him from his throne until he chose to repent. And in that time, he lived life like a beast, wandering around in the wilderness, and he would only be restored when he came to a place of repentance, which as we talked about last week, I believe he did, admitting that he was not in control, but the Most High God certainly was. Belshazzar, he knew all this, because remember, there was a decree that went out from Nebuchadnezzar himself that explained this account in vivid detail. And Belshazzar knows about this story. And yet, he's repeating the very same mistake. Pridefully denying the sovereign rule of God. And actually, if you think about it, Belshazzar didn't just deny the sovereign rule of God. He mocks it. He exalted man-made gods in the presence of the God who made man. The one who breathed life into his lungs. The one who has revealed his identity and all that he has created. This was the God whose hand was on the wall and the words were a message from him. Look at what it says beginning in verse 25. Now, this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upharsin. This is the interpretation of the message, says Daniel. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put it into it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, you, your kingdom, has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and they put a necklace of gold around his neck and he issued a proclamation concerning him that now he had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Daniel saw the writing on the wall as did everyone else for that matter, but only Daniel understood what it meant. It was cryptic. These were Aramaic words. They were actually nouns describing units of money. And so we might uh, translate to say, mina, mina, shekel, and a half. Today we might say, dollar, dollar, quarter, and a nickel. Now can you understand why they were confused? I mean, anybody else got that figured out? But Daniel comes in and he looks at it not as nouns, but he treats them as verbs. And in those verbs, he gives the explanation of numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. Which isn't exactly obvious either, is it, right? But under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Daniel knows exactly what they mean, so he explains The word numbered is repeated twice, and oftentimes in Scripture when that happens, it's for uh, emphasis. And that may be true here, but it also could have a dual meaning. Because God has numbered the days of the kingdom of Babylon. But not only that, he has numbered the days of of Belshazzar, the king. And we need to understand, for that matter, 
He's numbered our days as well. If we look at Job chapter 14 and verse 5, I'm going to apply this to all of us. So I'm going to change the pronouns here. And this is what it says. Since our days are determined, the number of our months is written within you, O God. Our limits have been set so that we cannot pass them. So what we know here is from for Babylon and for Belshazzar both, their appointed days have come to an end. They have been weighed in the scales of justice, administered under the righteous rule of God, but the king has refused to surrender. And so he has been found guilty in the absence of faith. Therefore, the kingdom was broken, divided between the Medes and the Persians. Everything God said would happen is happening just as God said it would. In response, Belshazzar immediately gave orders to give all the rewards that he'd promised to his wise men to Daniel. And then he claims to, to, to appoint Daniel as third ruler in the kingdom, which now, based on what we know in history, makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Nabonidus, number one. Belshazzar, number two. Daniel, number three. But in the end, it's really a meaningless gesture. And I think he was probably doing it just to gain divine favor because he knew he was in a world of hurt. Belshazzar was protecting his position while trying to purchase God's protection. But he could not earn God's favor with good deeds. We know for a fact that Salvation is by faith and not by works, right? We know that Jesus is the one who did all the work. That's the only possible way that any of us in this room have any sort of divine protection, knowing that our salvation was purchased by his blood and not because of our good deeds. Even yet, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I love the picture in Revelations where this, Revelation, where this is the book of Revelation, where this truth is proclaimed. So I want, again, to create the scene for you. Imagine in your mind a heavenly throne surrounded by a host of angels that filled the sky as far as you can see. It would be an immaculate scene. And within that scene walks in Jesus, representing the sacrificial lamb. Now listen to what happens as you've entered into that scene in Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them were myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them are heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. What a scene. And yet Belshazzar was unwilling to assume this posture of praise. Instead, he was trying to maintain his power, even using it to earn God's favor. But his only hope for salvation, our only hope for salvation, was a decision to relinquish control. And sadly, this was not something he was willing to do. And so that night, Belshazzar was killed by the Persians. From history, we know that they could not sail, assail the Babylonian walls. Remember, they were too massive to overcome. So here's what they did. They diverted the water out of the Euphrates River so that instead of going over the wall, they went under it, walking on the riverbed into the city. And nobody knew what was happening because everybody that was important was having a party instead of taking care of their people. Pride always comes before the fall, which, as we can see, has been a repeated theme. This must be important, because we saw this very vividly displayed in chapter 4 with Nebuchadnezzar, didn't we? And now here again, we see it with Belshazzar. And I think as Christians, it might be tempting to, to look at this and to say, and, at the blasphemy of Belshazzar, and just tell ourselves, gosh, I'm just glad I would never do anything like that. I mean, that was bad, right? And maybe you wouldn't deny God with such contempt and arrogance. But that doesn't mean you don't struggle with pride. In fact, you can pridefully boast in the fact that you would never do anything like that, right? You can feel superior to others looking down on them when they make mistakes or holding those mistakes against them instead of giving them the grace and forgiveness that they need. You see, people who do that are people who are ruled by pride. No less than Belshazzar. And, and I'm not so sure that spiritual pride may actually be more dangerous than outright rebellion. Because rebellion, you willfully are choosing, knowing what's right, but deciding to do what's wrong anyway. It's pretty obvious, right? But spiritual pride, you do something that's wrong, but you convince yourself that it's right. It's just a white lie. It's really not that big of a deal. It was righteous anger. That's what it was. It was righteous anger. Do you see how we can confuse ourselves when spiritual pride begins to dominate our attitude? So the question is, how do we protect ourselves from something so dangerous like spiritual pride? Well, there's probably a lot of things, but let me give you a few practical ideas that I would encourage you to consider. And if you've got your bulletin, write these down, because I want you to think about them after you leave here this morning. Okay, here's number one. Regularly admit 
your weaknesses. Number one, regularly admit your weaknesses. Let people know that you're still a work in progress, that you don't have this thing figured out. And listen, for people who think they have it all figured out, you are not a safe place. Okay? You're just not a safe place. And if you think you're one of those people who've got it all figured out, then you've got an issue with pride. You don't have to announce it to the congregation, but sit down with a friend and just tell them, hey, I just need you to know, this is something I've been struggling with. Can you walk through it with me? And then if somebody bravely, courageously is willing to sit down and have that conversation with you, would you do one thing? Would you just listen? Don't try to solve it. Just try to understand and be a friend by even opening up your own life and sharing with them some of the ways God is at work in you as well. So they don't feel like they're the only ones who's struggling in life because we know that's not true, right? So routinely admit your weaknesses. Secondly, consistently ask for forgiveness. Because pride is what causes us to overlook our offenses, to justify that it really wasn't that big of a deal. And it may not be that big of a deal to you, but it very, way, very well may be a big deal to others. Asking for forgiveness communicates value to the other person. It's telling them that you don't want anything, however small it might be, to stand in the way of a relationship that that's important to you. In fact, this kind of humility is at the heart of every healthy relationship. So consistently ask for forgiveness. And then finally, protect against spiritual pride by cultivating a posture of praise. We do that in a lot of ways, not just through the singing like we did this morning. That certainly is an act of praise. But every time you open up this book, it's an act of praise. Every time you kneel in prayer is an act of praise. Because what is praise? Praise is exalting God and recognizing our dependence upon Him. Doesn't that happen every time you open this book? And every time you kneel to pray? Or every time you raise your hands as you sing? Pride is what leads us to believe that we can do this on our own. Humility is what reminds us, apart from Him, I can do nothing. So let's make sure that we're mindful of the spiritual pride that can so easily entangle us. And before we point our finger at other people, let's be faithful to look in the mirror. Admit your weaknesses. Ask for forgiveness. And consistently assume a posture of praise. In fact, I want us to do that this morning. We're going to close in a song that in my mind, represents part of what we saw in that scene in Revelation when the host of angels gathered around. So we're going to join the host, all right, this morning. We're going to come alongside the angels and we're going to do as they have led. All right, let's stand and sing together. Can you imagine? Myriads upon myriads, thousands upon thousands. Because that was beautiful but it's nothing compared 
to what awaits us. And I just want to encourage you that any time you sit alone in your room and you open this book, or you're traveling in your car and you're singing that song, or you're in your closet, as the scripture tells us, on your knees praying for people, that those very same angels in myriads upon myriads are joining you in what you're doing because it brings praise and honor to God. So just remember that next time you enter into those places.